1: Welcome friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is April 30th, 2015 here in Japan, and viewers of my recent video on the 100th anniversary of poison gas on the battlefield will know that we are, of course, in the midst of the centenary of the First World War, and will be moving in the next few years through a series of 100th anniversaries of various sorts, and one of those will be upon us next week, May 7th. 2015 will mark the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Lusitania, an event that really catalyzed in the American public the sense that uh, Germany was the evil power in the world that must be stopped, and really did lead to uh, the the inevitable conclusion, the inevitable outcome of the U.S. entry into World War One, sometime later on the side of the British. So, in order to parse these events, we're going to be talking to James Perloff, who I'm sure will be familiar to my regular listeners. We've talked to him a few times before uh, about a couple of his books, The Shadows, of Power and Truth is a Lonely Warrior. Of course, both of those interviews are available on CorbettReport.com and will be linked up in the show notes. We also talked to him. A few months ago on Film Literature in the New World Order about Torah, 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 talking about the events at Pearl Harbor, he also has a very, very exhaustively documented article on his website, jamesperloff.com, about the sinking of the Lusitania called False Flag at Sea. It is very recommended reading and will cover more of the facts and details of what we're talking about today than we could possibly hope to cover in a conversation like this, but we will do our best. First of all, James, thank you so much for joining us on the program again today.
0: And James, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, you're rapidly uh, approaching uh, number one in alternative media if you're not there already.
1: Well, I, uh, I, I, I await with bated breath the taking of the <laughs> crown. All right. Well, let's get into the, the meat and potatoes of today's conversation, which, as I say, is going to center on the sinking of the Lusitania on May 7th, 1915. And we have reached a point at the 100th year mark of this event that I'm sure there will be a large percentage of this uh, of the, the listening public that don't even know about this event, don't know what it was, don't know its significance. So let's just set the, the table for today's conversation by just giving the bullet point run-through of what was this event and what was its significance.
0: Yeah, well, let's give the uh, mainstream media version, and that is... Um Of course, in 1915, uh, the Great War, which you're covering um, uh, at corporatereport.com, had begun um, after the assassination of Archduke uh, Ferdinand. And uh, the the Great Powers were at war, the Allies uh, against the Central Powers. England was uh, one of the uh, Allies, of course. And uh, the Lusitania, RMS Lusitania, was one of the Cunard ships, uh, it was a passenger boat but had been, um, uh, was being borrowed by the uh, Royal Navy to perform uh, munition-carrying duties along with her, her passengers back and forth between uh, America and Britain. And on May the 7th, 1915, she was torpedoed. Uh, there were about 1,200 people who lost their lives. More than 700 were rescued, but it was a horrific tragedy, and uh, there were 128 Americans on board who died. And uh, this event was portrayed to the public as the, uh, just a brutal act of wanton slaughter of innocent women and children, uh, no motive other than that. And it was used to fan the flames of war in America, and um, I, would have, I would have to say it was a signal event It did not re- result in an immediate declaration of war, but it was certainly the event that set the pattern. Of, of uh, dialogue between the uh, American and German governments that ultimately resulted in a break in of relations and uh, the declaration of war uh, uh, by America and Germany.
1: All right, as you say, that is the the official understanding that we're expected to uh, to learn in the history textbooks about this incident. But as your false flag at sea article goes into great depth to detail, this is not the be all and end all of the event itself, and there's a lot to talk about with regards to it, but. Perhaps first we should put it into perspective by talking about the U-boat uh, war that was going on at the time, the U-boats uh, attacking various ships uh, re- related to the British allies uh, at that time, which was related in itself to a naval blockade that was uh, that the British were enacting against the Germans. Let's just talk a little bit about that and the, the sort of context of this attack on the Lusitania.
0: Right. The uh, Royal Navy was a uh, superior in strength to the uh, German Navy. <clears throat> In fact so superior that they kept the German fleet boxed into the North Sea during the entire course of the war. And they they uh, tried to um, uh, get out uh, the Battle of Jutland, the only really the major uh, uh, naval battle of that war. Were una- unable to do so. It was only their U-boats that could escape the blockade. Now, the, it wasn't just the the German ships being kept in; they were keeping uh, supply vessels out from neutral countries. And so, for example. Uh, American cotton manufacturers could not get through to deliver cotton to Germany. And most significant, perhaps, to the Germans was that no food could get through. The the British were classifying that as contraband, actually, and several hundred thousand people did die of starvation uh, in Germany during the course of the war from that naval blockade. So the Germans uh, decided to use the only weapon they had to to have a retaliatory blockade. The the only uh, ships that could get out of that blockade were the U-boats. And they only had uh, seven operating at any one time in 1915, and usually only two in the British Isles, but they were inflicting damage. But here's what's important to remember, is that the Germans started out by observing what were called the cruiser rules. These had been established at the Hague Convention and earlier international conventions, uh, which stated that if you you were a warship and you came across a merchant vessel, you were to uh, give its uh, crew a chance to evacuate in lifeboats before you sank it or took it as a prize. And you can actually see footage on YouTube of the Germans doing this early in the war, and they were practicing these rules. They would surface... fire a shot across the bowl if the ship didn't stop, say, you have a chance to evacuate, we'll give you so much time, and then they would sink the ship. Now, all of this changed. Of course, the Lusitania, that didn't happen. The Lusitania was sunk without warning by a U-boat. Why did that happen? It happened because Winston Churchill, who was, all your listeners know, a major player uh, in um, events of the 20th century, uh, was then head of the British Admiralty in a unilaterally, decided to break the cruiser rules by having merchantmen armed and uh, given orders to either ram or fire upon U-boats if they arose, if they surfaced. And I'm going to read from what I consider the best book on the Lusitania, it's called The Lusitania by Colin Simpson, and uh, in Simpson he says, uh, quote, from October 1914 onward, A steady stream of inflammatory orders were issued to the masters of British merchant ships. It was made an offense to obey a U-boat's order to halt. Instead, masters must immediately engage the enemy, either with their armament if they possessed it, or by ramming if they did not. Any master who surrendered a ship was to be prosecuted, and several were, unquote, from him. And I also want to quote Churchill, because he's the guy who did this, and I want to, Churchill reveals what his motives are for this, okay? Um, He had written, prior to the Lusitania being sunk, to Walter Runciman, the president of the Board of Trade. He said, quote, It is most important to attract neutral shipping to our shores in the hope, especially, of embroiling the United States with Germany. And here's what he wrote in his post-war book, The World Crisis. He said, quote, the maneuver which brings an ally into the field is as serviceable as that which wins a great battle. The first British counter move made on my responsibility was to arm British merchantmen to deter the U-boat from surface attack. As the U-boats were forced by the progressive arming of the British mercantile marine to rely increasingly on underwater attacks, they encountered a new set of dangers. The submerged U-boat, with its defective vision, we the greatest risk of mistaking neutral for British vessels and thus of embroiling Germany with the other great powers unquote Winston Churchill. so you see what he's thinking here by defective vision, he's referring to the periscope. he'd been advised by someone in the, in the Royal Navy that it was very hard to identify a flag through a periscope, and to make matters even more confusing, the British ships were flying American and other neutral flags so the Germans had to be very careful they did not want America coming into this war and uh, but churchill was confident that sooner or later they're going to mistake an american ship for a british and and uh, then the anglo-american establishment will set to work fanning the flames of war and america will come in but the Germans gave churchill no satisfaction they didn't sink american ships and so he had to go to plan b plan b was to sink Have the Germans sink a British ship with a lot of Americans on board and thus flame American public opinion. And he had uh, Commander Joseph Kenworthy of the political section of British Naval Intelligence write up a report on what the political impact would be of just such a sinking.
1: That is a remarkable fact in and of itself, and points to a lot of the different pieces of the puzzle that show that there was foreknowledge of this event. Um, And and we can get that from a number of different places. Let's look, for example, at the pro-British ambassador to England, the U.S. ambassador to England at the time, Walter Hines Page, who actually wrote an interesting letter to his son just five days before the sinking of the Lusitania. With a interesting rhetorical question, let's go through Hines and some of the other um, people who, uh, sorry, Page, and some of the other people who uh, had these types of interesting premonitions shortly before the attack.
0: Yeah, this is a very exact premonition. Uh, I wish I could forecast the future this well. Okay, May the 2nd, this is five days before the Lusitania sunk, he wrote to his son, quote, if a British liner full of American passengers be blown up, what will Uncle Sam do? That's what's going to happen, unquote. So he's saying that it's going to happen, not that it might. What I find particularly interesting about this letter, James, is that he said the liner would be blown up. He did not say sunk. Um, this, oh, this brings me to a piece of information that I've overlooked to mention, which is the Lusitania was not merely sunk. It was hit. This is a 45,000-ton ship. It was the largest ship afloat. Uh, when it was uh, launched in uh, 1906, it preceded the Lusitania. was the largest ship in the world at that time. It was hit by one torpedo with 278 pounds of explosives. Um, after the small explosion of the torpedo, there was a massive explosion, and the ship went down in just 18 minutes—not uh, the two to three hours that uh, might have been expected, as was the case with uh, the Lusit was the Titanic. So there was this second massive explosion. It did blow up just as uh, Ambassador Page had predicted.
1: All right. Well, that, of course, brings us to the question of why it did blow up in such a manner. Um, And I assume it's safe to say that this was not merely a merchant ship or not merely transporting passengers. There must have been some other cargo on board. Let's talk about the interesting shipping manifest of the Lusitania and what it may be covering up about the actual cargo.
0: Sure. Sure. And uh, I'm going to uh, do that, James, but I just wanted to give one of the quotes because I know you wanted to uh, talk about foreign knowledge. Um, I did want to mention that um, the controller of Woodrow Wilson for Wall Street was Edward Mandel House. He, he lived in the White House. Uh, he was a Wall Street banker, and uh, he said to handpicked Wilson's cabinet. He was in England uh, at the time of the sinking of the Lusitania, and uh, you know he has a um, a biography that was written. It's called the Intimate Papers of Colonel House, uh, uh, collected edited by Charles Seymour, a member of Skull and Bones. Um, and on the day that the Lusitania is sunk, according to uh, these uh, the papers, here's what here's what House wrote. He met with Edward Grey, who was Britain's foreign minister. And here's what he wrote. He said, "quote We spoke of the probability of an ocean liner being sunk, and I told him, foreign minister Gray, if this was done, a flame of indignation would sweep across America, which would probably, in itself, carry us into the war. "Unquote," House. Later that day, House and Grey went to Buckingham Palace, and they met with King George V. And here's what House wrote: uh, "Quote: We felt it talking strangely enough of the probability of Germany sinking a transatlantic liner." He, meaning the king, uh, then said. Suppose, quote, suppose they should sink the Lusitania with American passengers on board. Unquote. So here, just hours before the Lusitania sunk, King George V is acting how America will respond if the Germans do sink it. Well, you put these quotes together with pages, and you can definitely see there's an awareness this event will happen. But I didn't mean to disrupt the flow there. And let's talk about why this ship was uh, considered a legitimate target. Uh, it was a passenger ship historically, but it had been built uh, with the assistance of the British government uh, with the stipulation that in the event that war broke out, that it would uh, be used by the Royal Navy as an auxiliary cruiser and fall under government control, which it did. It was refitted uh, for guns in dock and uh, with uh, more armor, and it was listed in Jane's fighting ships as an auxiliary uh, cruiser of the Royal Navy. And uh, it was used to ferry uh, munitions back and forth from uh, America to uh, Britain. It made a monthly cruise. And uh, actually, David Dow, who was the uh, who had been the uh, master of the Lusitania, actually quit. He told Cunard, who, who owned the Lusitania, that he just couldn't stand uh, any longer mixing passengers with munitions. It was actually against American law to do this, and what the British would do is they they would falsify the manifest. You know, uh, we were supposed to be a neutral country. And so they would hand in manifests to uh, Dudley Field Malone, who Wilson had appointed the, uh, the uh, head of uh, customs in uh, New York City, who just looked the other way or, and it would rubber stamp these manifests. But the uh, Germans uh, regarded this as um, a legitimate target because it was classified as an auxiliary cruiser. More than that. It was transporting. Let's just mention the munitions that were on board the uh, Lusitania on its fateful crossing. And These were typical of the munitions it would carry. It had 173 tons of rifle ammunition. It had over 50 tons of shrapnel shells. And although the British said that these were empty shells, divers uh, like John Light in the 1960s went down, brought back these shrapnel shells from the whole of Lusitania and found they were loaded with shrapnel. Uh, It also had 46 tons of aluminum powder, which was an explosive that the British used at their, what they called their Woolwich arsenal, in the manufacture of armaments, cannon, and shells and so forth. It had 18 cases of uh, uh, percussion fuses containing mercury fulminate, which was highly explosive. And it also had an unknown quantity. Uh, of gun cotton, which the British used in their mines and their large caliber shells, which was particularly interesting. It does not appear even on the the hidden manifest, the manifest that Woodrow Wilson ultimately ordered hidden in the archives of the U.S. Treasury, which oversees the Customs Department. But there were a lot of items that were very strange on that manifest, such as um, uh, there were... Uh, a, a, about 15 tons of butter and cheese, and uh, but th- we know this couldn't have been butter and cheese because it was not set in a refrigerated compartment. There was a refrigerated compartment on the Lusitania. It was not in it. They put meat in that compartment, and it was actually earmarked to go to the weapons testing establishment of the Royal Navy. What would they want with rancid butter uh, and cheese? And nobody ever filed an insurance claim on it. And there were other items like that that nobody filed an insurance claim on that vanished uh, when the ship went down after those uh, 18 terrible minutes for the passengers on board. So this was loaded with explosives. And um, uh, that is probably the reason for the massive explosion. I should mention that the main, which had a similar it was very similar, you know. It was also a false flag. It was used to bring us into war. It was blamed on the Spanish. It also involved two explosions. No one denies that the second massive explosion on the main was the forward magazines blowing up. Uh, but people, including the, the British government at that time, tried to say it was just the boiler rooms blowing up. No way, because sailors survived from all three operating boiler rooms on the Lusitania. We know that it was from the forward cargo area where the torpedo hit. And we know that not one sailor in that region survived that explosion. So uh, there's certainly no question in my mind, in the mind of other writers, such as um, Colin Simpson, the author of The Lusitania, that it was the munitions that went off. And this is almost undoubtedly what uh, Page or, and others were thinking of when they predicted that the ship would be blown up.
1: Well, in our conversation about Pearl Harbor, uh, we talked in about a lot of the same... Ideas, including some of the same characters like Churchill. But uh, but one of the ideas of an event like this is that you can only go so far as uh, t- towards setting this up, but of course it relies on the enemy actually taking the bait. So you have to set the trap in some way. Uh, how was that accomplished with regards to this uh, Lusitania? How did they actually actively attempt to get the Germans to go after it?
0: Well, uh... There were plenty of uh, German-American dock workers who saw what was being uh, loaded on the Lusitania, and so the munitions, although the manifest didn't necessarily reveal it, were no secret to them, and this information could be passed on to the German embassy. Now, an important um, uh, point in all of this is that the Germans warned, tried to warn the American public not to get on board the Lusitania, they published a notice, um, anybody who's studied the Lusitania knows about this notice, and you can see copies of it, but uh, they ordered a notice to be put in 50 newspapers right near the Cunard uh, shipping uh, uh, listings uh, next to the uh, listing for the Lusitania, and it said notice in large letters, travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that in accordance with a formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction of those waters, and the travelers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain and her allies do so at their own risk, signed the Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C. Now, this was supposed to go out a week before the Lusitania sailed, but a officer at the State Department ordered it not to be published. So uh, I think it was only the Des Moines Register that actually published it on time. Uh, the German sent a representative to William Jennings Bryan, the secretary of state, who immediately cleared it for publication, but now you've only got two or three days left, he asked President Wilson to please warn Americans not to board the Lusitania. Wilson declined to do so. So uh, not only were they trying to keep Americans from boarding this ship, which it was them. It was obviously a vital priority to keep these munitions from reaching the war front in Europe, uh, but they didn't want to take Americans down. They were trying to prevent Americans from from going on board. But this notice, I should mention, James, as far as the setting up of the incident did clue the British that the Germans had their eyes on the Lusitania. The very fact that they were trying to keep Americans off of it. The other thing to understand is that it was known that a U boat the U-20, which sank the Lusitania, was operating in the South Irish Sea, the sea between Britain and and, uh, Ireland. This is the path the Lusitania was to take to get to Liverpool. Uh, The day before it sank the Lusitania, it had sunk two steamers there. And I should also mention that the British had cracked Germany's naval codes. Uh, This was top secret, but when a U-boat would surface and uh, call home they could read those signals, and this gave them an excellent idea of where the U-boat was headed. Now, the U-20, which sunk the Lusitania, was too far from Germany to surface and give those signals, but they knew its destination before it sailed. They knew it would be there, and they knew from its several ships that it sunk uh, its approximate whereabouts. So uh, with a big ship like the Lusitania, I mean, there was no guarantee it would spot the Lusitania, but it was a huge ship with uh, four funnels, and uh, not an easy ship to hide, although there was a, still a lot of water to cover between uh, England and Ireland. There was no guarantee that the, uh, Captain Schweiger, the captain of the U-20, would pull the trigger or that he would find a ship. But uh, they seemed to be very confident of it. Um, and I should mention that uh, there were several measures that are quite suspicious in this regard, Normally, with a submarine threat, destroyers would be sent to the ship. Uh, Previously, when a submarine threat had had existed, uh, destroyers would accompany the Lusitania or any important valued ship of Great Britain. In this case, no destroyers were sent, no escort, even though there were four destroyers lying idle in the nearby port of uh, Milford Haven, they were not sent. And um, also, it's interesting that when the... Uh, Lusitania arrived at the South Irish Sea and no no escort was waiting there Uh, there were communications between the Lusitania and the Admiralty we know that from the radio logs but all the transcripts of the messages are missing so we don't know what was said it's strange that just those messages happen to be missing they have never been made public the uh, other thing is that Knowing that a U-boat was in the South Irish Sea, the Admiralty could have saved the Lusitania easily. They simply rerouted it over the north of Ireland where it knew there were no, U- no U-boats uh, operating. It also could have diverted it to the port of Queenstown on the South Irish coast. It's interesting that there had been a cruiser designated to pre- protect the Lusitanians called the Juno, but the Juno was not allowed to go out to... Uh, to protect the Lusitania on the excuse that it was vulnerable to submarine attack. Why was no such uh, vulnerability uh, a cause of alarm to the Admiralty? And I want to give you a couple of quotes, James, uh, that are relevant here. And these are from people in British naval intelligence. The first is from someone I already mentioned. It is uh, Commander Joseph Kenworthy uh, of the Political Division of, of Naval Intelligence. Quote, the Lusitania was sent at a considerably reduced speed into an area where a U-boat was known to be waiting and with her escorts withdrawn, unquote. The second quote is more damning. It's from Patrick Beasley. Now, Beasley is considered the uh, leading authority in the history of British Naval Intelligence. Um, this is his book, Room 40, uh, British Naval Intelligence, 1914 to 1918. He was long an officer in that service, and here's what he he writes in his book. Quote, the Speaker of the Lusitania, quote, nothing, absolutely nothing, was done to ensure the liner's safe arrival. I am reluctantly driven to the conclusion that there was a conspiracy deliberately to put the Lusitania at risk in the hopes that even an abortive attack on her would bring the United States into the war. Such a conspiracy could not have been put into effect without Winston Churchill's express permission and approval, unquote, Patrick Beasley's British Naval Intelligence. So they have it right from a British Naval Intelligence officer. He's a truther. He's He's a conspiracy theorist. He uses the word conspiracy, and he uses it more than those two times that I quoted in referring to the Lusitania.
1: Once again, I think the parallels with the Pearl Harbor story are evident. We have people on the inside who know that this was what was happening and could see it happening and talked about it afterwards, but were not listened to, or at least not given a shrift during the uh, the cover-up phase of this operation, which we'll get to in a moment. But before we do so, you read the, uh, the quote from Commander Joseph Kenworthy from his book, The Freedom of the Seas, but... I note that you had omitted one word which was excised from that quotation at the insistence of the Admiralty. Could you reread that co- quote with the, the operative word reinserted?
0: Uh, yes, I can. Uh, with, the word was deliberately, and uh, uh, the Lusitania was deliberately sent at considerably reduced speed into an area where a U-boat was known to be waiting and with their escorts withdrawn, unquote. Yeah, that, that word was omitted uh at the admiralty's request. And uh, there are a lot of things, of course, that they requested to be omitted. including, <laughs> <Exactly. laughs>
1: Of course. Well, let's get into that, because, of course, once again, uh, I, again, the parallels with Pearl Harbor are are many, but I think it's quite evident that we can see through the the, F, the, 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 the instance of the cover-up, we can see that there was clearly something going on more than uh, than what they wanted to show to the public. So let's talk about the various aspects of how this cover-up was affected by the same person who was in charge of the titanic inquiry
0: right um well there was um uh let me just get my uh, correct page here uh there was of course uh, a report filed and uh it was um done by uh, richard webb director of the uh, admiralty's trade division uh, summarizing it and he concluded that the uh the disaster was entirely the fault of uh Uh, Captain William Turner, the master of the ship, and uh, here's what Webb wrote. He said, quote, at the end of the report, he said, quote, one is forced to conclude that he is either utterly incompetent or that he has been gotten at by the Germans, unquote. Now, uh, this report was then reviewed by Admiral Lord Fisher of the Admiralty, who concurred, saying, quote, Turner is not a fool but a knave. I feel absolutely certain that Captain Turner of the Lusitania is a scoundrel and has been bribed. I hope that Captain Turner will be arrested immediately after the inquiry, whatever the verdict or finding may be, unquote. And he also added this on top of Webb's report. He said, quote, Ought not Lord Mersey to get a hint, unquote. Lord Mersey was the rec commissioner who would oversee the hearing. He'd overseen the hearing on the uh, Titanic, as you just mentioned, and he oversaw this hearing. Churchill, reading the report, said, quote, We shall pursue the captain without check, unquote. And then Webb wrote to Lord Mersey, and he said, quote, I am directed by the Board of Admiralty to inform you that it is considered politically expedient that Captain Turner, the master of the Lusitania, be most prominently blamed for the disaster, unquote. So how's that for justice? Before the inquiry even begins, the uh, Chief Justice is is told who he is to find uh, guilty. Um, But I should mention that uh, Lord Mersey uh, was actually merciful towards... Uh, uh, captain Turner. He did engage in a cover-up. He did never ask Turner about his cargo. He accepted an uns- unsworn uh, statement from uh, Dudley Field Malone, that American um, uh, Customs uh, Commissioner, that there was nothing uh, contraband on board. It was an unsworn statement. And accepted that. He did not ask the captain what his cargo was, and that was quashed. Uh, any discussion of the cargo was quashed, and he concluded that it was entirely the result of German torpedoes. They even multiplied the number of torpedoes, which we know was only one. Uh, but he was unwilling to crucify Turner. And I have a feeling, uh, James, that one reason for this was not only was Turner a very good man and a very able seaman, but Winston Churchill had been sacked by the time of his verdict. And there was, because of the Gallipoli disaster, uh, Churchill had been sacked, and there was no need to placate him. And so this was uh lord mercy's last official act of justice he waived any fee for it and he told his children that uh, the lusitania affair was what he called quote a damned dirty business that's what he told his children
1: (sighs) just a remarkable um obvious cover-up unfortunately but uh but i think this information once again just goes to show uh just how how open and shut a case this really is um all right uh, I think I've lost my place in my own mental notes of where we're going with this but let's so let's switch directions then we've talked about the incident in, in some detail and as I say there's much more detail in your false flag at sea um, article but let's talk about the effects of this incident of course as we mentioned earlier as we as we somewhat uh, alluded to there was the Hope among the people who were really involved in setting up this plot that it would immediately evolve, involve America in war with the Germans. It did not do so. It took a couple of years for the America to eventually become embroiled in the First World War, but it certainly did start to shift the tide of public opinion, and it was made, made use of to a great extent in the, uh, in the, uh, the propaganda on the Allied side um, from, from that point forward. Let's talk about the effects of this incident on the psyche of uh, the Allies generally.
0: Um, if you go to my uh, website, com and that article, False Flag at Sea, which I know you're linking to, I have a lot of the posters which uh, are uh, very emotional posters showing little ghosts of little girls coming out from the sea and uh, Avenge the Lusitania, Remember the Lusitania. And, you know, it's the same thing with Remember Pearl Harbor, Avenge Pearl Harbor, Remember 911. We just see this pattern over Remember the Maine, uh, over and over again, playing on public opinion. Uh, well, uh we had that quote from uh, Walter Hines Page. Oh, so let me give you another one. Right after the Lusitania was sunk, Walter Hines Page, who, by the way, was on the payroll of Cleveland Dodge, the munitions and imba- uh, manufacturer, even while he was ambassador to England, he wrote this to Wilson, and I find this to be rather remarkable, too. We're talking about how predictive this guy was. His cablegram of May the 8th to Wilson, President Wilson, quote, the freely expressed universal opinion, meaning here in Britain, is that the United States must declare war or forfeit European respect. So far as I know, this opinion is universal. If the U.S. does come in, the moral and physical effect will be to bring peace quickly and to give the U.S. a great influence in ending the war and in reorganizing the world as to prevent its recurrence, unquote. So this shows to me... But in 1915, they're already looking ahead to the League of Nations. We're going to have something that you, President Wilson, will be involved with, the League of Nations, that will prevent the recurrence of war. So, and there was a lot of confidence. In fact, the uh, U.S. Uh, embassy in Germany started closing down. They were so sure a declaration of war was coming. But American public opinion was not ready for this. What if of German-Americans in this country uh, were aware that uh, all was not right with the Lusitania, that it was ferrying munitions. And uh, it, uh, President Wilson tried to say that Americans had this sovereign right to travel anywhere they wanted, and this had now been violated by Germany, and uh, this is not true at all. Uh, Americans could easily avoid uh, any danger by going to uh, Britain on, a, on an American ship or another neutral ship. You didn't have to travel on a, on a British ship. It was a war zone. Uh, it, the Germans had done everything they could to warn people not to board the ship. It was a legitimate uh, target. And uh, uh, President Wilson gave an ultimatum after the incident to the Germans that they must stop submarine warfare, which of course they could not. This is the only means of retaliating they had. So they sent him, this is interesting, they sent him a copy of Winston Churchill's orders to his merchantmen, ordering them to attack submarines. You know, the several, I should mention, James, several submarines had been sunk by your ch- merchantmen by ramming or firing. These these subs were pretty fragile. Only took one cannon shot to sink one, um, and so that's why they had again. They, that's why they had to abandon the cruiser rules. So they gave Wilson a copy of Churchill's orders, which one of their subs had found on board a merchantman, and they also explained that the uh, ship was carrying contraband and why they had been forced to abandon the cruiser rules. And they also offered to make good and any damages from to America from the the loss of life, and so it's pretty hard to declare war under those circumstances. And there's a quote that caused a big rift in the State Department. It caused our Secretary of State to resign. Um, It was uh, Wilson replied, this is the reply he wanted the Secretary of State to reply, said, quote, the United States has enforced its statutes with scrupulous vigilance through its regularly constituted officials and is therefore able to assure the Imperial German government that it has been misinformed. Unquote. No specific refutation of any of the charges and Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan had been jousting, actually, with, uh, for some time, uh, with Wilson over his pro-war, pro-British attitude that, uh, he didn't care if, uh, American ships can deliver, uh, 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 their goods to Germany. He only cared about the fact that Americans were having their so-called sovereign right to travel in, in, uh, impacted by the Germans sinking a British ship with Americans on board. So, uh... Secretary of State William James Bryan resigned. He refused to sign the note he knew was false. He'd already seen a note from uh, Dudley Field Malone, the customs commissioner, saying that almost everything on board the Lusitania was contraband when it was sunk. So he resigned uh, in dis- disgust, but that was quite fine with the Anglo-American establishment. They didn't like Bryan. He was honest. And he'd only been given the Secretary of State position because, uh, you know, he'd been the former presidential candidate of the Democratic Party. They had to have his secure his cooperation to get Wilson to be president, and um, the, the trade off was he'll be Secretary of State. And once he was out, he was replaced by Robert Lansing who was the top legal advisor at the State Department, who had been constantly circumventing Brian. His nephews were Alan Dulles, who went on to head the CIA, and John Foster Dulles, who headed just about everything from the Rockefeller Foundation, founding member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and so forth. So he had a real insider in charge of the State Department from now on. But there was a lot of jousting that went on. But Wilson had to kind of lay off come 1916 because it was an election year. And people were saying, you know, we don't want a pro-war, pro- we don't want to go to war. And so, for the for the most of 1916, he had to sound the message of peace, and the 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 campaign cry became "He kept us out of war." But at the moment the election was over, he began moving for that uh, declaration of war that he got in early 1917.
1: Well, you paint a vivid picture of the fact that. There, uh, that Wilson and perhaps more importantly, the people puppeteering him, definitely wanted to embroil America in war, much against the uh, prevailing American sentiment throughout much of the First World War. Let's talk about why that is. What was the agenda? Why was it so important to embroil America in this war? And what ultimately came of the First World War?
0: And you know, that's a question that actually interconnects with every other false flag, and there are so many of them over the years. But James, I find that um, when the establishment, the powers that be, go to war, they usually have multi-dimensional purposes. And uh, let's talk about the purposes for World War One. Uh, one was certainly to uh, restructure the world. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was wiped out. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was wiped out. The Russian Empire was wiped out. Um, and, of course, they wanted the world to now be overseen by the League of Nations. This was the the world government they've been lusting after for years. It became bigger in the form of the UN after World War II. Uh, actually, you see this incredible interconnection between World War One and World War Two in terms of motive. Um, you have the League of Nations going to the UN. And uh, another motive I have to say, James, is... Um, you do have uh, banksters who are Zionists in this. Their world government. They envision the seat of it ultimately being in Jerusalem. And out of uh, World War I came the uh, Balfour Declaration by which Britain promised to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine, even though Britain had never been in Palestine. They had no interest in there whatsoever. Uh, but they made that guarantee in exchange for the Zionists bringing America into the war. And on top of that, you had, of course, the war being used to create the uh, Bolshevik Revolution and the engenderment of the very first communist state, the Soviet Union, and the same banksters, the Warburgs, the Rothschilds, Jacob Schiff sending Leon Trotsky with $20 in gold in 1917. Uh, so the first totalitarian police communist state is being created. And uh, as usually have the... the uh, the banks is making huge money. Bernard Baruch was uh, appointed head of the War Industries Board by Woodrow Wilson, who coincidentally he'd also made a series of, of promises to before he was allowed to run for president. Uh, but the banksters made um, a total of about $6 billion in fraud, uh, and I'm, by fraud I mean that these were munitions that were never manufactured or never delivered or got diverted to their own uses. And this is all covered in a 21-volume, three-year report by the Graham Committee of Congress, uh, which, by the way, there's not even an entry for in Wikipedia; it's uh, it's um, it's disappeared. Uh, but uh, so there was profiteering, and I might mention too there was suppression of um, civil rights in America. Think of the Patriot Act. Uh, you had the Espionage Act of 1917, the Sedition Act of 1918. And these guys, they made it a crime to oppose the sale of bonds, loans to the government, and war manufacturing, which later turned out to be fraudulent. I actually want to quote from that act, the Sedition Act, <clears throat> quote, uh, "...whoever, when the United States is at war, shall do or say anything, except by way of bona fide and not disloyal advice to an investor or investors, with intent to obstruct the sale of, by the United States of bonds or other securities of the United States." or the making of loans by or to the United States, or shall willfully, by utterance, writing, printing, publication, or language spoken, urge, incite, or advocate any curtailment of, of production in this country, of anything or things, product or products, necessary or essential to the prosecution of the war, shall be punished by a fine of not more than $10,000, or an imprisonment for not more than 20 years, or both. Um, and this applied to free speech as well. It provided these very same penalties, uh, 10000 and or 20 years in prison for anyone who quote shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States. You know, I used to think that the Patriot Act it was just you know it's the police state as today, but the, there was a police state then, and quite a few Americans. I, I give some examples in that article uh, were imprisoned for uh, 10 and 20 years sentences for speaking out against war production for speaking out against the war, Charles Lindbergh, the Congressman, wrote a book called Why Your Country Is At War, and the publishing plates were were, were confiscated, so the book couldn't get to the public. So there was a lot of suppression of free speech. So we're talking about, again, a multi-dimensional war. We see the hand of Zionism, we see communism being created, we see the restructuring of the world, we see world government, and I should, oh, I should also add, how about world banks? Out of World War II came the World Bank, just before, six months before Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, the Federal Reserve was created. How handy for the banks to have the Federal Reserve handy just before they went into the First World War.
1: You're exactly right about that. And I think it is important to stress that events like this don't take place for any one isolated reason. They happen when an, a whole confluence of reasons converges on on something taking place. And while we're discussing this this fact and this uh, these ideas, and you mentioned the Graham Committee, which has been scrubbed, scrubbed from Wikipedia, the bastion of truthiness, well, there is still an entry for the Reese Committee up on Wikipedia, the United States House Select Committee to Investigate Tax-Exempt Foundations and Comparable Organizations. <sighs> And let's not forget that the head researcher of that committee, Norman Dodd, did talk about uh, uh, the, uh, the actual original meeting minutes of the Carnegie Foundation from its inception in 1908, in which the learned members of that board, debated in a most learned fashion... How to embroil America in a war in order to shape public opinion, uh, something which, as Dodd, I think, succinctly summarized, could not have been further from the mind of most of the average Americans at that time in 1908. Fast forward a few years, they had managed to basically take control of the State Department and steer America into a war. So on that note, uh, I know you've exhaustively documented this in a number of your works. Let's talk a little bit about Wilson and, more importantly, the people around him and surrounding him and puppeteering him who were really the ones responsible for moving America towards this war mentality.
0: Uh, Well, certainly you have uh, the Morgan interests. Um, uh, As I recall, it was... uh, um, a Morgan owned publishing company that, um, uh, I believe it was Harper, that published Woodrow Wilson's book. You know, Woodrow Wilson is kind of like Obama, he kind of comes out of nowhere. He was the president of Princeton, um, but uh, as I recall, even that was an arranged affair. It was his classmates, uh, Cyrus McCormick, of uh, who founded a McCormick Harvester, and I believe it was also Walter Hines Page, who had become trustees of Princeton University. Uh, he became the president of Princeton and um, uh, was suddenly, uh, you know, the, the amazing thing about Woodrow Wilson is that he had almost no political experience, very unusual for a president. He had not served in Congress. His only political experience was one year as uh, governor of New Jersey, and that is magic that only the establishment could pull off. I should mention that the Republicans had been in control for, of the White House for 16 years, and there was trouble brewing in the Republican Party for uh, the the Rockefeller-Morgan-Warburg axis. Uh, you had people like Senator Fighting Bob Follette, who had a reform movement. He was trying to get that nomination in 1912. And um, you also had people like Charles Lindbergh. There was a reform movement taking place within the Republican Party. And they decided that uh, Wilson, the Democrat, was better to invest in. and. As uh, some of the listeners will know, Teddy Roosevelt, the former Republican president, was trotted out to run on what was called the bull moose ticket that split Republican votes. Uh, all of a sudden, Roosevelt was yamming about the need for reform, which took all the steam out of uh, Bob Lafellette's uh, attempt uh, to get the nomination. And Wilson became president with 42 percent of the popular vote. So he was certainly surrounded. He got a lot of campaign financing from Page and from Jacob Schiff who would go on to finance the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, and um, you had, uh, uh, if you look at the entourage that Woodrow Wilson brought to the Paris Peace Conference, uh, this is quite interesting, he had appointed Paul Warburg as the uh, vice chairman of the Fed, first vice chairman. It was Warburg, of course, who ran the Jekyll Island meeting, as we, uh, as almost everybody will know in your listening audience, that founded the Fed in secret in 1910. Well, he appointed him to head the American delegation to the Paris peace conference while his brother max was representing the germans and of course his brother max had uh, come up with a plan to send lenin into russia with uh, gold on a uh, on a uh, darkened train and uh, of course edward mandel house was always at his side including in paris at the paris peace conference and his chief economic advisor at that conference was bernard baruch who he made head of the war industries board so the financiers are all around wilson um He was certainly uh, on their puppet strings. And, uh, you know, there was almost a war with Mexico, you might recall. I don't mention this in my article, but uh, in 1914, uh, Woodrow Wilson, if you look up Tampico incident, it's mentioned in Wikipedia, there was an incident in 1914 where uh, some U.S. sailors uh, landed in the Mexican port of Tampico and they were arrested for violating the port rules. And they were... uh, uh, re- arrested and returned to their ship unharmed, while the rear admiral in charge demanded that the Mexicans not only apologize, but file a 21-gun salute to show their penitence. And the Mexicans said, well, we'll apologize, but we're not firing a 21-gun salute to the American flag. This became an international incident, and Woodrow Wilson, be- this is 1914, the year before Lusitania, went before Congress and said that America's dignity had been... Um, Despoiled by the uh, by the Mexicans, and we invaded Veracruz and Tampico. Veracruz, 129 American uh, Mexican soldiers killed. Now, this was not about um, the American flag, James. It was about Standard Oil. Mexico had a new president named Huerta. He was not favorable to Standard Oil, and they wanted him out. And that is an indication of the type of leverage that the banksters had with Woodrow Wilson. And probably the only reason we didn't have more difficulties with Mexico, it was because they found they had bigger fish to fry with Germany in that world war in Europe.
1: Just incredible. Well, then finally, to return to the Lusitania itself, obviously, we've gone through a large cast of characters who had a part to play in this. Is there any one figure in particular that you think was the mastermind of this incident that we could lay the doings at the doorstep of?
0: Yes, the same man that Patrick Beasley mentioned, Winston Churchill, who was head of the Admiralty, he was in control, he was in charge of what was happening with British um, uh, naval vessels, uh, not leaving port to act as escorts and as well as the course of uh, merchant vessels such as uh, the Lusitania, which were then under British control uh, of, I'm sorry, Royal Navy control uh, as a result of their agreement with the Navy when uh, they assisted, the British government assisted in the uh, building and the, um, the uh, maintenance of the uh, Lusitania before the war started.
1: All right. Well, uh, there's a lot to go through. And as I say, uh, I hope people will go to the article itself where you have all of the footnotes and references to everything we've talked about and much more in a lot of detail. So uh, once again, jamesperloff.com is the place to go and false flag at sea is the article to read, both of which will be linked up in the show notes. James, is there any other points that you'd like to bring to the table with regards to this, anything that you think is uh, relevant to this conversation that we didn't mention?
0: Uh, No, I've covered uh, covered it all, uh, I think, as far as a succinct uh, conversation about the Lusitania. But I want to say that your site is the place to read and the place to be. I really appreciate the fact that uh, you are networking with so many people in the truth movement. And I really uh, like your style of when you um, uh, post an interview, you have all kinds of relevant links and information, maybe pro and con. Uh, what's been discussed, and you have comments. You uh, encourage uh, uh, open conversation with your followers to post remarks and have their thoughts. It's free flowing committee. It's the way it should be in the mainstream media. You know, you you should, the, I wish the TV networks were run like cor- the corporate report.com And I'm not, I don't say this to every host that I'm on, James. I'm not being flattering because I happen to be on your show. Uh, like I, I, I mentioned uh, off the air, I've moved you up to the just about the top of my links list because you deserve it. I really appreciate uh, the thoughtfulness and the critical thinking uh, that uh, you're putting into what's going on in our world.
1: Well, I do appreciate that and I, I do accept it, but I will also, of course, give a lot of the credit to the Corbett Report community that makes this open source investigation possible and that uh, participates in it. And as you say, I think that is an important part of all of this to have the feedback from people out there to contribute their own links and information and research and, yes, dispute what's being said as well. I think that's important. So uh, thank you for participating in this. I know you are also uh, also have a, uh, a membership, so uh, we'll see you in the comment section there at CorbettReport.com okay. from time to time as well. And I appreciate that as well. So James Perloff, I think we'll end it there for today. Thank you again for your time. Thank you so much, James.